Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. Welcome, listeners, to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here with my co-host, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. Hey there, Kelly. It is great to be here. It was a hot start to fall here in the Southland, but glad things have finally cooled off a little bit. Yeah, at least it's not in the 90s this week. But, exactly. Um, I don't know. We may be stirring up some heat with this episode because it's a little controversial, but first... What a week it's been. It's been very busy. Um, Our episode list is growing, and so is the response to our misinterpreted podcast. Thank you so much. Keep sending your ideas and suggestions. Review the podcast. We really want your feedback. If you have content ideas, would love to hear those too. We just got back from Atlanta yesterday. Quick trip down and back for yeah. client meetings. And we also had lunch with an exciting upcoming guest. I'm who- very excited about mm-hmm. her. Um, she is a trailblazer in the Atlanta LGBT community. Actually, a personal friend of mine. I'm going to give too much away at the moment. But yeah, very excited about having her on an upcoming episode. Me too. And the best feedback I think we're getting is on the substance and relevance of the topics that we're talking about. And we promised that we would be diverse in our subject matter. So we plan to stay true to that. So today, Mary Beth and I want to tackle an issue that's really been making the rounds this year in social media. And that's the matter of how some brands are adopting and pushing social debates and even hotly contested political ideas as a so-called strategic extension of their brands. And this can be... this can be a, a big problem. Yeah, it can be very controversial. And, um, you know, the whole area of CEO and brand activism, it's really taken on a life of its own. And we, I think we uh, referenced in one of the past episodes about the Nike situation, the Gillette right. case study. It's an area that is so prone to misinterpretation and for brand messages to get skewed in the process. And even for companies to find themselves in the process of their trying to be relevant with their own activist message, they find themselves in full-on crisis mode. It doesn't take much to be viewed as off the mark and artful. And you could even be viewed as some form of social pariah in the process, which is obviously the last thing you want to do. And this issue is really relevant for so many reasons. I mean, just the ability for something to go viral so quickly and impact um, consumer opinion and consumer Mm -hmm. purchasing decisions. And there are definitely two diametrically opposed views out there that we're going to be taking a look at today. The hashtag brands taking stands is the one that seems to advocate mm-hmm. for the rationale for companies and brands to be doing this right, right. and to make it a centerpiece of their PR efforts. Not so sure I agree with that, but another hashtag, which I think is so funny, get woke, go broke, <laughs> um, pretty much <laughs> pushes cautionary tales of politics gone wrong and how yeah. brands are stepping in it with their customers, employees, Investors, the media, online audiences, you name it, every possible stakeholder group. And then they can end up losing millions or even billions of dollars in the process. So Mm -hmm. you have to be careful here. So here are some things that we're going to talk about today. Does it make sense to go political with your brand? If so, when should you do it? What should be the criteria? What are the risks? Are there any rewards that you can... uh, put out there that mm-hmm. you, you know you'll get. How do you make this approach successful in today's era of echo chambers and tunnel vision? And are there safe issues like equal pay or women's rights? 
or homelessness? Or does any socio-political mm-hmm. issue pose a risk? Well, it, just when is it bad form to get political, I think is that overarching question. And that's the one that I've been struggling a little bit as I've seen what's been going on in the larger landscape and especially in social media. We mentioned a few episodes ago in the marketing to women that, you know, some brands even have hijacked the Me Too movement in order just to sell some, you know, hashtag imprinted merch, you know. So when is when is a backlash uh, of that form, does it really pose a real risk for a you know, a company to put its brand around and really try well, to let's be talk about yeah, doing that. that. I mean, why is this issue so relevant right now, and why does it matter? Well, it, one thing that I've noticed is over the past couple of years, in particular, some big name PR firms have asserted that going activist is the thing to do. So now it's it's become de rigueur, if you will. It's a trend. It's hip. It's hot. It's a bandwagon. Uh, you know, bandwagons and my experience, though, in having just been in this business as long as I have, they have a notorious habit of careening off cliffs with everyone on board. That's a visual. Yeah, indeed. And it's, uh, you know, the amount of time that it takes to go from being a hot trend to some, I don't know, big splat on the reputational windshield can be clocked in minutes these days. So when does CEO activism morph into a form of open mouth insert foot syndrome, but in a very contrived, very high investment way. I mean, these companies are sinking some serious dollars into these activist campaigns at the behest of PR counsel. So, you know, at the same time, you have to be sophisticated so that audiences can see right away that it's not some type of contrived effort, that it's an organic thing. But a lot of times, I don't think that that's what's happening. No, I think it is contrived Mm -hmm. and manufactured for the most part. And it seems to me that research is probably getting the yeah. short end of the stick on yeah. this. Yeah, I would agree. Because if, and we're going to look at some studies today and mm-hmm. refute some of the data, but there's so much bad advice that is getting pushed out there by trusted authorities. Mm-hmm. And there's a serious risk. We cannot forget that one campaign gone wrong can put you out of business. Right, right. Uh, it poses fin- yeah, very serious financial risk. And, you know, when you back up and look at the 30,000-foot view, it seems that the public relations profession should be about uh, bringing people together and not creating so much divisiveness, not contributing to the divisiveness. It seems like the last thing our global society needs is more grist for the mill, pushing perceived divisiveness and all of its little ugly cousins, hostility, rancor, hate, you know, fractured and twisted messaging for the sake of pure profit. All of these things are serious issues that come really part and parcel with this type of strategy. I think it's it's a fight for profits, and yeah. maybe this is just a new trendy way that CEOs mm-hmm. think that maybe they can even build their own personal brands mm-hmm. in the process. Yeah, There's also the issue of how brand activism is playing into the realm of professional right. activists yeah. and exploiting these causes. We've seen a whole industry pop mm-hmm. up surrounding that. There are even nonprofits who have popped up. Or so-called or that, non-profits. So-called, so-called <laughs> Very non-profits. often they're into astroturfing yeah. and, and right. trying to uh, lend the appearance that they are doing a grassroots campaign or that a grassroots campaign has organically manifested itself when nothing of the sort no, has it's happened. it's all but completely yeah. propaganda. Right. So I think in PR right now, I think we live more in a world of propaganda than we ever have. Mm-hmm. But one thing that's of particular concern to me is youth activism and oh, where yeah. young people are being used as pawns on the national or even international stage 
I'm not going to mention any examples here, but I think most people have seen this play out, and kids are getting pushed out there in ways that are going to impact them for the rest of their lives. Oh, yeah. And I hate to see that. Yeah. I mean, things can get out of hand um, with activism PR. What PR firms and their clients are often igniting is, I think the best way for me to describe it is that they intend for it to be a controlled burn. Okay. I mean, uh, let's look at the, I mean, when you think about the world of literal firefighting and very often when we talk about crises, we're talking about things that are on fire, you know, things like your office once was exactly. That's a whole other episode for sure to talk about that for crisis uh, communications. But the, um, this imagery that we have a controlled burn is where firefighters intentionally set small fires that are intended to be 100% controlled for the purpose of reducing flammable materials in the wild. It's like underbrush and things like that. The whole intent of a controlled burn is prevention of a crisis uh, in that context. But you look at the world of PR, and activism PR generates what can immediately be fiery discourse. I mean, the exact opposite. Yes, exactly. And on a public stage to boot. I mean, it's intended to be maintained and controlled by the brand for purposes that support the brand by casting the brand, you know, as a hero, a fighter for the greater good, truth, justice in the American way, mom and apple pie. The brand should never be the hero. Mm. And I think these activist brands, the activist brands are trying to make the brand a hero, even in ways and spaces that are completely irrelevant to what they do or who their customer base or their, their stakeholders are. That is such a good point. That is such a good point. Um, And and it's, uh, I think it's irrefutably old school that the brand be the hero and always the hero and always have all of the answers. Uh, And I do think that that notion is incredibly naive. Um, I mean, going back to my little fire analogy here, I mean, whenever you throw a lit match into the kerosene of today's public discourse, I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Like social media, anything else that can attract the attention of cable news or a celebrity Twitter handle with millions of followers, that fire that gets ignited can be anything but controlled. I mean, that's the power of unintended consequences when we talk about the this purposeful brand activism PR. It's as high risk as it can be. And, you know, crises can easily ignite in the process. Um, who does that benefit? Well, for one, it can sure benefit PR firms. I mean... Uh, it's extra work for us. Yes, exactly. And I think there's this fiduciary level of in, intent that we should have of, and we talked about this on one of the very early episodes of Misinterpreted, that as public relations counsel, we should be fiduciary stewards of our clients or our employers' resources. But ironically, we have quite a few firms out there right now that are aggressively advocating. I mean, they're out there advocating for brands to ignite these fires and to hire them, these PR firms themselves, to help them not only in the ignition of the fire, but also the containment program. <laughs> yeah, yeah, putting it out or dealing with the full-on crisis that ensues there. So if it explodes into a full-on crisis, these same PR firms have got you covered there too, not so <laughs> coincidentally. Yeah. All of them have their crisis management practices as well, that they're more than happy to charge 
full rate <laughs> to these same clients. Isn't to that called them. returning to the scene of the crime? It's exactly. Well, it's called kind of a conflict of interest. I mean, but yes, there are a lot of different terms for it, for sure. But you know, they can be then paid to help contain the crisis that, ironically, the PR firm started by virtue of this jacked-up activism strategy. It's kind of crazy. Um, so listeners, I mean, especially those with PR firms that have thriving activism or cause marketing practices out there, forgive the comparison. But, you know, I think that what we're seeing here is not just a controlled burn by PR firms that have gone whole hog, if you will, in pushing activism and cause marketing practices. It's my argument that what we may be, what may be going on here in some cases is nothing short of arson, really, and a big insurance policy only for the PR firms. And I think for us to come out and take a stance on it is very important because um, from an ethics standpoint and from who we are as an agency, it's not what we're about at all. Right, right. Now, now, is this the case in every single scenario? I mean, absolutely not. Uh, and we shouldn't cast criticism in the form of absolutes. Activism campaigns, I think that when undertaken ethically, to your point, and for the right reasons, and with the client being fully engaged and aware of what's going on, what they're signing up for, and to what specific ends it's going to take their brands, that all can be very compelling and effective in the right contexts. But, I mean, Kelly, that's a lot of ifs thrown into the mix. It is, and I think that maybe some brands are starting to confuse activism with corporate social responsibility, which is an entirely different thing. Mm-hmm. And it's we'll related, be talking it, it, about it, that. It's related, yeah, but it's, it is a very different, certainly a very strategic, different strategic approach. And I mean, what I'm advocating for here is transparency and disclosure as to the rationales, the process, and the true business case of what's of what's really going on. And you've taken quite an in-depth look at this, and you've written a couple articles on the subject, mm-hmm. and um, you had a blog on LinkedIn. Right, yeah. Uh, back in March, um, I did put out a blog post that exposed... A couple of industry studies that were done by two PR, two separate PR firms, uh, which shall remain nameless for purposes of this conversation. I think it's much more important to focus on the data they produce than to really get into pointing fingers at the agencies by name themselves. But yeah, we, I, I did do a, um, a blog post on that, and, and, and folks can find that um, on my LinkedIn profile. The, the name of the article is Spin Cycle, PR Firms Push CEO Activism with Selective Data. And then there was another article that I wrote for the USA Today Network, Tennessee. It was called um, Rise of Do-Gooder Marketing Can Pose Reputational Risks. And both, both pieces really talked about this issue. So let's talk about the Agency A and Agency B study and what you took issue with. Um, you got me interested in it, and I mm-hmm. dug in and, and read the data, too. I don't think a lot of people do that. They just look at the findings, and they look at the... Yeah. Uh, they the look at the overall, news release they look at the news that was release. sent out by the agency. Yes, <laughs> so they don't really look at the data to see if it adds up. So for our listeners who aren't in PR, agency... A and Agency B are two very well-respected global PR oh, yes. firms. Oh, absolutely. They absolutely are very well-respected, which makes some of these insights that they are pushing on this very specific topic, at least to me, it's all the more confusing and, I mean, frankly, a bit disappointing in terms of how they chose to put that uh, put that information out there. So what we'll call as Agency A Uh, Their data about CEO activism was part of a larger survey that included many other issues. And Agency A was, this was part of their annual trust survey. 
Um, if I said out loud uh, what the name of the survey is, I think most people in the industry would would recognize it. It is one of the most cited longitudinal studies on the issues of reputation and trust globally. I, in fact, have cited it many times over my career this past decade. It's a very valid study in and of itself, but this specific component of it that they generated was problematic. My problems with both firms' survey analyses were focused squarely on their conclusions specific to the CEO activism topics. Okay, so let me just kind of focus on that part. Incidentally, as part of my due diligence in writing my blog post on this, I did contact both firms to ask more probing questions. Interestingly, yeah, journalism journalism school right here, University of Tennessee. Thank you. Um, I emailed two agency A officials uh, just to ask them some questions and try to follow up and kind of probe it how they arrived at their data. Both of my emails to them were ignored. Um, However, Agency B, the second one with the second study, they were very responsive. Uh, In fact, they responded within minutes of my emailing them. So so they get kudos, um, even though they will remain nameless for purposes of this conversation. But they were quite courteous, very helpful in making, I mean, they basically confirmed everything that I was gleaning from the study is actually being quite problematic, which uh, was interesting. Um, The blog post was published March 25th of this year. And so in all these months since, I have never been contacted by either agency to say, oh, wait, you got something wrong or you... You misinterpreted some of our information yeah, or some inaccurate. of our data. So I, everything that I'm about to report here is, is I think, still on the money. Well, what were the methodology concerns um, mm. with either study? Because we all know that data can be interpreted a lot of different ways, and mm-hmm. we can pull insights out that aren't necessarily 100% accurate for sometimes for your own personal gain. So right. what did you see in these studies that raised the red flags? Well, for me, the methodologies looked fairly solid in and of themselves. I did see some nomenclature problems, you know, the use of wording or descriptors, particularly in the agency A study that could be interpreted in different ways. For example, they used the word progressive in some of their descriptors uh, when they were actually talking about more progressive communications, I think, like more digital communications right. as opposed to, you, you hear the word progressive nowadays and you definitely put that into a political right. category as left of center usually yes. is how that's that's um, that's interpreted. Uh, interchanging the term social issues and societal issues. I mean, there were some things like that that may be kind of nitpicking in some people's view, but they never did really quantify or define some of those kinds of terms. But all of that stuff aside, really, my biggest issue with both studies was that proactivism, you know, these survey news headlines that they put out arguably reflected what I think were just cherry picking exercises. They did not match some of these PR firms' own critical data points and I mean, Kelly, frankly, I think they hardly tell the whole truth about CEO and brand activism's downsides. And we've already talked about what those look like. Well, admittedly, when I browsed through both of of the studies, I paid more attention to the graphics, the call-out graphics, because we're all busy. And I think as professionals, we have a tendency to just trust whatever's out there if it's from a reputable source. So I paid more attention to the graphic takeaways than than anything. But what were the... 
you know, what were the biggest issues that you saw from the actual survey data yeah. of either study? Well, um, and I'll keep it high level because actually there were numerous problems and you'd have to look at the the blog post that I put together to really see and <laughs> dissect all of that. If you're really interested, you can take a look, but let me just keep it high level. For Agency A, their survey news release headline blasted out the news, and I'm going to quote this, quote, survey of institutional investors reveals urgent need for public companies to address societal issues to build trust, end quote. Okay, so from that headline alone... I'd like alone, to call BS on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, I was very interested when I saw that headline, and, of course, it prompted me to get more into the, the nuts and bolts of the analysis. But from that headline, I think really any normal consumer or certainly business person would infer a pretty sweeping statement and a mandate, I mean, urgent need for publics to address societal issues and to that's build when trust. The, the CEO calls in the communications person and says, we need to do this. Right, exactly. And it's, automatically thinks it's going to work and it's a great idea. Exactly. Well, and Agency A, in their news release, they reported that, quote, 98% of investors think public companies are urgently obligated, not just that they need to do it, they're obligated to address one or more societal issues, end quote. So, I mean, does that mean that all public companies, which incidentally are the ones with the highest budgets um, for PR, need to pull out their soapbox and just start promulgating opinions on any number of politically oriented topics? I mean, that's that's a takeaway that I think some people might get. Oh, that. I think so. And it's um, a firestorm using that analogy again, waiting to happen with all with various publics. Right. But even that 98% number, it ended up being, I think, very misleading because upon review of their published full results of the study, only cybersecurity and workplace diversity registered above 50% of U.S. institutional investor support for companies to take a public stand. Which those make a little bit more sense, mm -hmm. um, cybersecurity and workplace diversity. But that does not equal a headline as strong as right. what Right. Well, was basically what they had was a list of all of these different, quote, societal issues of which th those two were uh, on that list. But like things like uh, gun control, they were not on the list. Some of these more... Um, controversial subjects. And if any institutional investor responded to the survey, just checked even one of all the things that were on the list, that was included in the 98%. Okay. Okay? So <laughs> th this is where we get into the cherry picking of data and the slicing and dicing of things. Um, and, and in truth, Agency A's list really only received lukewarm to weak institutional investor support for companies to take a stand on, you know, issues across the board. I mean, just, it just wasn't there. Now, let me shift over to Agency B and the study that they had. Um, there were just a lot of issues on that one and how the data were reported and, in my view, mischaracterized. And, for example, Agency B had <laughs> this huge headline touting their survey data saying, CEO activism pays all caps exclamation point with big dollar signs all over their call out graphic. Okay, so like yeah. money is to be made here with CEO activism was the implied message. And the exclamation point is like laughing at your own joke. <laughs> exactly. Well, and the firm stated in its news release that CEO activism positively affects U.S. consumer purchase decisions. They even said, "quote." 
42% of consumers aware of CEO activism have taken action through purchasing behaviors. Now, 42%, that does, I mean, that's, it's a lukewarm number right. to begin with, but listen to this. Shocking fine print on that one. <laughs> and I just have to laugh. Nearly twice as many consumers said their action taken has been not to buy from <laughs> or even to boycott the activist company as opposed to buying more from the company. Okay. That's so, not Amazing. only, I mean, not only is uh, are these um, respondents saying that they would not buy from or even boycott the company. This was a seven point increase from the previous year. So it, this is on an upward trajectory of more people having a negative reaction than having a positive reaction. So their data only indicates that uh, what eighteen percent. There's eighteen percent consumer report, uh, consumer support rather of a positive purchasing outcome for the activist company, which Agency B excluded from its promotional messaging entirely in the news release. I mean, to me, that is just PR malpractice right, right there. Yeah. Um, Agency B also made this statement, and, p- and pay attention to these last three words, quote, nearly half of consumers, 46%, would be more likely to buy from a company led by a CEO who speaks out on an issue they agree with. Well, duh. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so consumers must first agree with the specific position a CEO is advocating on an issue before only 46% of that particular subset would be even, would be more likely to buy from the company, which of itself is only a potentially positive outcome, not a definitive one. Right. I mean, I mean, and I know this is getting into the weeds and this is getting into, you know, numbers and data that you know, a lot of people just don't want to have to get into it. But guess what? The devil is in the details. And I think we're looking at the devil here. I mean, consequently, Agency B's best assurance to C-suite executives considering an activist PR campaign is that only a percentage of a percentage of consumers may offer only a prospective positive reaction that present, I mean, all of that just presents a tenuous basis at best to open a Pandora's box of risky corporate activism messaging. It just gets all over me that they had this data underpinning this study and they came out with the news release that they did. I, I still can't God believe it. That's for our entire profession. Um, there are some serious ethical considerations here. And why would either firm be motivated to promote survey data that didn't match up. Well, I mean, on that point, uh, I mean, only those two firms can speak to that, either Agency A or Agency B. Um, I do invite uh, both of them to get in touch with us and let us know. I mean, if if they want to go in and, and look at the actual blog post, certainly I use the agency's names there. But um, I mean, we, we do welcome if they have other insights here to, to allow to this conversation. But I do want to point out the obvious. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there is a profit motive for PR firms that have a, quote, brand activism practice, you know, to be pushing business development to that profit-making area of their agencies. And banging this gong that CEO activism is the best thing since sliced bread or the up-and-coming bright and shiny new thing in the marketing toolbox seems to be the strategy in play here. Um, I think that backing up from this specific example, it's important for all public relations firms to place client and prospective 
client interests first. And as I mentioned earlier, that includes fiduciary interests. And we're in the agency business, Kelly. I mean, you and I both are, and we have been for many years. We all want to drum up business by sharing thought leadership content. That's what we're doing with this podcast. Yeah, it absolutely is what we're doing with this podcast. But it comes down to you cannot tell a story that isn't true. Exactly. Um, in any way, shape, or form. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, there's nothing wrong with business development, and it's good to share knowledge and insights. But we do have to be careful and only place good counsel out in the public domain and into the marketplace of ideas. And where the industry runs into problems is if any firm gets into this slicing and dicing and cherry picking data exercise and presenting it in ways that may be technically true if you parse words in just the right way, uh, but that actually are critically false or very easily misleading in the larger context, all for the purpose of helping drive business their way. Well, those are these are only two firms, and obviously there right, are right. hundreds and hundreds of firms in our country. But what you're saying is there's a larger impact here? Well, uh, what I have noticed is that um, both of these agencies' news releases got significant pickup in the end. I mean, these are these are, um, I guess, what you would call household name PR firms in the industry. I mean, all, all of us who've been in the business for a lot of years, we'd certainly recognize them. So it's the larger impact on the profession and the fact that so many colleagues, publications, other third parties, even those completely unaffiliated with either agency or any of their clients, have they've used these news releases and the very specific way this data was pre- you know, presented in the public domain in order just to regurgitate this guidance in the trade press and back to, I mean, countless corporate decision makers, you know, the clients who did not look at the data as closely as I did, but just took the news releases on face value as fact. That's the word of God from a trustworthy source. So, well, I, I welcome both agencies to chime in further here too. I really hope that they will. Um, Obviously, Data and investing in research is expensive, and it's important that it's reported accurately. So let's take a look at where corporate social messaging can work well. It's sure, yeah. Corporate social activism wrong? Is it? Is it just plain oh, wrong? Well, is it problematic well, all the time? I think it's like everything else. It's all in the execution. I mean, um, in the other article that I wrote for the USA Today Tennessee Network that had to do with this topic, um, I did mention that this type of technique in reaching audiences and trying to achieve real personal connection with people from a real passion and and heart-driven, heartstrings-centered approach really springs from the more traditional mode of strategic charitable giving, community relations, um, anything that a client can do that is action-based, that puts others' interests first. That's I mean, not self-serving. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's where this activism piece has really morphed into something, as you mentioned earlier, placing the brand as the hero instead of the community, the other you know, the other parties central to their stakeholder groups. And that's that's a big issue. And number one, you've got to know your stakeholders. You've got to know what is going to resonate with them. You know, we talked in a couple of episodes ago about the Nike um, example and how that strategy has borne out apparently well on the financial side for them, that they they embraced a very 
what many would consider a, a fairly risky strategy, and it is working for them. But you do have to know your stakeholders, and you have to realize, I mean, if you're going to go down a very politically divisive road, you have to know that you may be turning off huge swaths of current or potential customers for life. <laughs> and it's often hard to quantify who you're turning off. Right. Because it goes back to that rule of if somebody is approves of something or they have a positive experience, they're going to tell three or four people. If they have a negative yes. opinion, they're just going to shut it down and push it away and go away. And you may na- never even know who you've turned off. Well, but and of course, social media has turned so much of that on its head because so many <laughs> So many consumers just, they take great delight in letting, <laughs> yes, letting you know if you've made them unhappy. So it goes into, I think part of the reason that the Nike thing bugs me so much, apart from, you know, I, I do have political views that are what they are, but I embrace this idea of respecting people's diverse ideologies and viewpoints. Um, to me, it's every bit as important as respecting other demographic characteristics you know, characteristics of an audience. And um, right now we're kind of in this PR diversity, hashtag PR diversity month in the public relations profession. There is often an activism message in the PR profession, but it's now starting to ring hollow to me because so little has actually evolved or progressed. I mean, to me, diversity needs to be more than just an empty message or just something that is an idea. It needs to be something that's substantive. Not a box that you check for the sake of checking. Exactly, exactly. And it's it's like everything else that we've talked about. Um, for example, you know, marketing to women in an authentic way, uh, just to insult people's intelligence and just talk about it in theoretical terms, but failing to execute to that in a definitive and substantive way. It's like diversity in name only, <laughs> You know, and that's a problem. So we had some recent news here in Knoxville. It was centered around UT Knoxville, and you we've all seen it. The little boy who was bullied. Right. And he went to school, and it was wear your favorite college team day uh, shirt, your favorite college team shirt. And he wanted to wear a Tennessee shirt, but he didn't have one, couldn't afford one. So he wore an orange shirt, and then he wrote, a, t- a UT on a piece of paper and right. he taped it onto his shirt. That was, and, gosh, that was such a heartwarming. It was. And he got bullied for it. Yeah. So uh, yeah. UT actually, I love what they did. They took a stand against it, um, it but it wasn't political. You know, this was, this was not political. They um, sent packages to the school with all kinds of UT swag and notes from athletes and they decided to go ahead and, and print the shirt. So at first, only several hundred of the shirts were ordered, and now over 100,000 have been ordered. That is just amazing. And the proceeds are going to benefit Stomp Out Bullying. I think that's a really good example of how a brand can take a non-self-serving, semi-activist, I mean, we're, you know, we're against right. bullying, but we're going to just lift this person up right. and... And in the meantime, it lifted up the the whole UT brand and the whole TUT experience. I mean, I will tell you, and of course, being an an alumnus of UT, um, and I've had a lot to say over the years about various things the university has done, but I have to say that that example has to be one of the biggest 
PR wins for them that I have ever, ever seen, seen because of the grand scale. I mean, it was on major network news. Right. It was picked up all over creation. And for good reason. I mean, it was a very uplifting and authentic story. It was, it was not contrived. It was... It was, I mean, it was just beautifully executed in terms of not only the university putting forth a message that is so relevant in today's society and culture right now because there's so much negativity out there. But they they even gave the student a scholarship. Right, um, yeah. I think they, yes, they had... Um, uh, basically circled back around after the initial wave of publicity about them producing the shirt based on his design came out, they offered him a, um, a full ride scholarship. And I don't think that they've ever even disclosed who the student is or what his name is. You no. haven't, you haven't seen that in the, in the news, which I kind of liked the aspect of letting that, you know, boy be able to keep keep his privacy and the family privacy and it not become, that was not part of it. To your earlier point or about um, not exploiting kids as part of the story. Right, exactly. Um, those are the kinds of opportunities brands need to be on the lookout for. Right. Just when can we insert ourselves into a conversation that is not too controversial. I think everybody will agree that bullying is a bad thing and most people are against it. Of course, it. of course. Um, and then how can we do something to lift others up and not be self-serving? And that's when you're going to get really true, authentic, good press. And not only that, you're going to make people feel something. Mm -hmm. And when somebody feels something... It's real. And it brings out emotion. Mm -hmm. It just attaches you to that brand in a way that nothing else can do. Mm -hmm. And certainly polarizing messaging and activism, um, there's such a risk of bringing up the negative feelings. Mm -hmm. And right. so just as a positive feeling can attach you to a brand, the negative is going to make you never even look twice at that brand again. So, yeah, you know, I will say, too, that I think the biggest hurdle for most brands in being able to execute to that kind of in the moment strategy is their ability to be in the moment and to be ready to, to execute. Have the time. I mean, we're very often talking about 24-hour time horizon windows to not only communicate a message, but backing up from that, having made an executive decision to do something. I mean, for the university to have made the decision, we are going to you know, commit some resources here to get an initial run of t-shirts done. We're going to commit the staff resources to get this publicized out to support this young man. Um, all of that had to happen in a real-time kind of scenario. It meant boots on the ground with staff and with their team to, and really hats off to the, you know, to the executive management at UT for having been very quick um, in, in response and, and the communications team as well. Um, several of whom are my, um, past employees. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure. Well, anyway, um, I guess the moral of the story here with this episode is if Mary Beth emails you, you might want to <laughs> respond. She emails you and asks you a question. Otherwise, um, you may have a whole episode about, um, whatever it is that you didn't respond to. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what kind of uh, feedback we get from this, uh, from this episode here. It will be, um, interesting to see, um, but yeah, I mean, kudos to Agency B on that account. They were very responsive to me um, and uh, told me I hadn't misinterpreted anything. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Yes. So to our listeners, don't forget to follow the Misinterpreted podcast on social media. We'll respond to your questions and comments. So please post them using the hashtag Ms. 
Interpreted, that's MS, Interpreted, and for visibility's sake, capitalize the PR. You can also follow me on Twitter at KD Fletcher, as in Kelly Dawn, as well as Fletcher PR, and you can follow Mary Beth West at Mary Beth West. Our thanks to our sound engineer, Chris Hill of Knoxville based HumblePod. You can find him at HumblePod.com. Join us next week when we welcome Mark Weaver from Radio Systems Corporation to talk about the power, credibility, and cost of influencer marketing. Until then. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 